0: I'm going to have you turn this morning to the book of Hebrews. We'll turn to chapter 10. We're kind of doing a little mini-series out of this book, different themes from the book of Hebrews. And I want to just start out that our culture today is very unlike, in many ways, the culture of the first century. And what I mean by that is the Canadian context is simply this, that we have grown up in a culture that's been influenced by Christianity and Judaism. We've been influenced by a Judeo-Christian ethic. And it's affected our thinking. And even people who are not believers have embraced some of the value system and we've built our our foundation, our culture upon these elements. Even though they may be eroding, it's still a reality. But in the first century, it was unlike that. In the early church, you know, people that were Christians were considered different. They were considered an off-sect of Judaism and of all the religious structures because people in those days they were religious they believed in gods, many gods and here was you know the Jews who believed in one God and then Christianity who talked about you know one God but manifested in three personalities and so there was an intensity and if you didn't go along with the main structure of the culture you were antagonized you were persecuted you were socially ostracized as a matter of fact the early church began to experience persecution and it was not necessarily all at one time everywhere at the same level it was localized and it happened in different spurts you know you'd be in one town and the church was under great pressure in the one community and the next community they would be flourishing and they were accepted by the culture so it was always changing and so you know one of the earlier followers of Christ a man by the name of Polycarp, Polycarp was a disciple of John, the, the beloved disciple of Jesus. And Polycarp became the bishop or the pastor of the church of Smyrna, which is present-day Izmir in Turkey. And Polycarp, you know, just loved Jesus. And persecution arose in his community, and, you know, he fled to a farm, and they, they eventually found out where he was. And, and instead of running away, he says, No, I'm just going to go find out what these guys are about. And they took him back, and you know they wanted him to renounce his faith in Christ and his response to that was for 86 years I have served him and he's done me no wrong how then can I blaspheme my king who saved me and so Polycarp would not renounce his faith and therefore by some technicality instead of being eaten by a lion he was burned at a stake and lost his life and so the early church celebrated the martyrs it was a big deal But you know, at the same time, while people were giving their lives for Christ, others, under pressure, were renouncing their faith. And you can imagine, so some, and just think in this congregation today, you know, persecution, some people now, your brother, your wife, your husband, your sister, they lose their life. Other people renounce their faith. A few years go by, the, the political situation changes and now all of a sudden the people who had renounced their faith decided I want to come back and serve Christ now how would you feel if you know you'd lost somebody you love because they had stood up for their faith and now people are coming back into the church that you knew saved themselves from death because they renounced their faith but now they want to be reinstituted they want to come back into the church can you, how many get a feeling there might be a little tension in that congregation? Yeah, there was a lot of attention. As a matter of fact, in North Africa, this became so intense. And the, and the church kind of polarized around two different viewpoints regarding the nature of the church. The first was simply that the church was pure and, and that, you know, what, what their understanding of holiness was simply, you know, without sin. And the people that stood up and lost their lives, those kind of people that believed in that ideology, became known as the Donatists and the rest of the church decided no Jesus is forgiving if people want to come back after they've made that kind of a decision they can be forgiven and so there was a move in the church there was a a conflict between should we reinstitute people who had given up on their faith versus those who said no they can't do that And fortunately, the majority of the church decided to be forgiving and pastoral and began to receive people back into the church, which I believe is the biblical position. But you could see how difficult it was. Now, why am I saying all of this? Because I don't think we understand that there's still a battle for the souls of human beings. There's a constant conflict going on. We're engaged in this battle, and I bring this out because the early church was struggling with some of these things. And uh, I believe that we're called to persevere in spite of major challenges that will come in our lives. One of the things that help us in a time of difficulty, in a time of trial, in a time of challenge, is that we have a vision that, ex- that moves us beyond our present problem. See, everyone in this room, we're going to have trouble. Now we don't want to hear that. But Jesus Himself promised us that in this world you will have trial. You'll have tribulation. You'll have problems. So I want to just say this right off the bat. Trouble and difficulty and trial or challenge or obstacle is normal. Has everybody got that? It's not like God doesn't, you know, all of a sudden stopped loving you because he allowed a trial in your life. See, that, that's a wrong interpretation of what's going on there. We need to understand that God loves us regardless of what's happening to us. We need to understand that trials will come, and they're not designed to destroy us. You know, I tell this to couples all the time that are having marriage problems. The trouble that you're in is designed to bring you together, not tear you apart. But what happens so often with trouble is it kind of reveals the true state of our soul. That's why we don't like it. It reveals our true condition, and we have a tendency to focus on the trouble. Isn't that true? Especially if it's intense, and it becomes all-consuming. All of a sudden, the problem becomes greater in our mind than any other reality, and we're locked into the problem, and that's what happens in our lives. But I think it's important to know that when we have a vision beyond our trouble, it helps us through our trouble. Okay, and listen to what Paul said. Now, Apostle Paul, how many know he was a troublemaker before he was a Christian? And later on, has life was full of trouble. You cannot read 2 Corinthians and not understand he went through all kinds of difficulty. But this is what he says to King Agrippa. He says he's in court, he's in chains, he's in trouble because he's preaching the gospel. And he says to him, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. Well, what vision is he talking about? Well, remember, he was on his way to Damascus. And while he was on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians, to put him in jail, because that's what he'd been doing and seeing Christians get killed, Jesus appeared to Paul. And as a result of that, his whole life has changed. And so he says to him in the next verse, he says, says, first in Damascus, notice this is where he became a believer, in Damascus. And then to those in Jerusalem, and then in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also, I preach that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. In other words, Paul is saying, God gave me a mission or a purpose. And I want to suggest to you today that when you and I have a mission or a purpose that's compelling, it can actually help us overcome our current problems and challenges and difficulties. So it's very important that we have a compelling purpose governing our life. Now, why I'm saying that, because there's only, you know years ago I took a course and it was about management. And in this course it basically said there's only two approaches to management. It's either crisis management or management by objective. Very interesting. And I've discovered something, there's only two ways to live. It's crisis management or management by purpose. In other words, I either allow my crisis to define me. Some people go from crisis to crisis. If you ever been around, how many people know what I'm talking about? You're just seeing they go from crisis to the next crisis to the next crisis, and their whole life is defined by the present crisis they're in. That's called crisis management or crisis lifestyle. And I watch people do this all the time. They just go from one crisis to the next. And then there are other people whose whole life is defined by the purpose in which they're living life. And trial comes into life, and difficulty and challenge, but you never get the sense when you're around them that that's what's defining their life. They're being defined by a higher purpose. They're being defined by a compelling call to their life. And I find it interesting that Paul's mission or purpose is the same mission or purpose that he gave to his disciples and which he has given to each one of us, and it's found in the book of Acts. You know, a few weeks ago, we talked about Pentecost. Remember that, some of you were here. Talked about the Holy Spirit. We talked about the empowerment of the Spirit. Isn't that all? That's all exciting stuff. But there's a reason why God blesses us, and it's not just to make us feel good. It's not just to give us some sort of a spiritual high. It's not just designed, to, you know, to have fun. I think those are all good things. But it's got there's a reason for it. It's a compelling reason. There's a purpose in it. And He says in Acts one eight, but you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, so that you will be My witnesses. And then he starts out in Jerusalem because that's where they were beginning. And so I'm going to suggest to you that you and I have a mission or a purpose that begins right where we're living. And how many know that right now in Canada, this has become a great mission field? You know, there are parts of the world right now that there's more people per per capita and percentage-wise that are believers than are actually in our own country. This was a great mission-sending country. But you know what? Over the course of time, in the last 70 years, Canada has moved away from God in an amazing measure. And we're nowhere where we used to be, folks. And we have become the mission field. And so you don't have to go halfway around the world to do missions. You can just step out the door of the church and start doing missions. There's tons of people to talk to here. Most people in our city, you know what? They're in a state of confusion. They're perplexed, and when you try to talk to them about God, some are interested, some say they're not interested, but the reality is their life is in confusion and brokenness. Sin is dominating. Their fallen nature is controlling their life, and they need people to come alongside of them and befriend them and care for them and love them and share this wonderful message. We need to have this compelling purpose in our life. One of the problems is that we can easily be seduced by the values and the things of this world and really lose a sense of direction and purpose. And I've said this many times. The good life many times is keeping us from the best life. In other words, the affluence that we're living in, the wonderful lifestyle that we have in Canada sometimes distracts us from really pursuing the God life. It really does do that. And uh, John Piper in one of his books says this, Uh, In his book called The Root of Endurance, he says, There's a mindset in the prosperous West that we deserve pain free, trouble free existence. Isn't that true? And a lot of Christians, you know, we think this way. You know, if if things aren't working out, God's really disappointing us, He's really letting us down. Come on now. And I want to just say to you right now get out of that mindset. It's not biblical. You need to say to yourself today, I will have trouble. That's exactly right. Thanks, Adam. It's the truth. You know, I will have trouble in this life. But thanks be to God. You know, God is greater than my trouble. It's not what's going to define my life. Trouble is not going to define my life. Purpose is going to define my life. And my purpose is to serve God. My purpose is to glorify God. My purpose is to make disciples, as it says here. It says, when life deals us the opposite, which is opposite of a trouble-free existence we have a right we have this thinking we have a right not only to blame somebody or some system or to feel sorry for ourselves but also to devote most of our time to coping so that we have no time or energy left over for serving others and what i'm saying is simply this when trouble comes your way the temptation is to fold up your tents and focus on yourself and your problem true or false true and what am i saying today don't do that that's the temptation Keep serving. Keep loving. Keep giving. Keep blessing. Amen? Amen. It's, it's that's important. You know what? That'll give you more better mental health. It'll give you more peace. You'll have more joy. You know, as you're serving, what happens when you become inward focused? Then you sit down with your little teacup and you have your own little pity party. You know, whoa, woe was me. You know? And I'll tell you, the devil will start pouring the tea. He'll just keep you going. You know, you'll be walking around telling people all your troubles, you know. But that's not going to solve the problem. Everybody has trouble. See, once you get that in your mind, everybody has trouble. Then we can say, but you know what? I've got a Savior that's greater than my trouble. I've got a God who loves me. I've got someone who cares about me. Amen? Once you get that in your mind, you go, hey, the trouble is designed for a purpose, reveal my condition of my soul, and number two, to help me become more Christ-like. Because I learn from every difficulty how to trust God. I learn in those situations that God is faithful. I learn from those experiences how good God really is. So Piper goes on to say, when churches grow up in this mindset, and it never occurs to anyone in such a community of believers that choosing discomfort or stress or danger might be the right thing to do, even the normal biblical thing to do. See, we avoid this stuff. When in reality, you know what? Paul, remember they said to Paul, oh, there's a prophecy. You're going to get in trouble when you go down to Jerusalem. You're going to be arrested. You're going to be bound. Paul goes, if that's God's will, so be it. He says, I'm still going to Jerusalem because I know that's where I'm supposed to go. Most of us go, hey, I'm I'm taking another trip. I'm not going down there if there's problems down there. You see the attitude we need to have? Hey, if God is asking us to do something, anybody that wants to really have a powerful impact in the lives of other people, I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to suffer a few things. It's going to be challenging. It's not going to be hassle-free. It's going to be difficult. That's reality. Get that in our minds. Okay. Okay. If we, Piper goes on to say, if we will not freely take our cross and follow Christ on the Calvary road, it may be thrust upon us. In other words, if you and I try to avoid trouble, guess what? You can never totally avoid trouble. It's gonna find you. Existence in this fallen world will not be pain-free and trouble-free. There will be groaning because of our finitude, which means our limited nature, and our fallenness and many afflictions because of our calling. Frustration is normal, disappointment is normal, conflict, persecution, danger, and stress, they're all normal. You go, Pastor, I'm getting bummed out already. This is not an uplifting, encouraging sermon. No, I'm trying to give you a full dose of reality so that you can handle life. Because I think a lot of people are like ostriches. They want to stick their head in the sand and deny reality, and that doesn't work. Okay, the mindset that moves away from these will move away from reality and away from Christ. You know, that's the truth. So what I might want to talk about today is simply this. Three things to help us persevere in our faith. Because God is interested in developing perseverance in our life. You know what perseverance is? Not giving up, not quitting, hanging in there, continuing on. This is a long journey. This is a long journey, folks. And what I want you to understand is this life is not all there is to it. Do you realize that you and I have eternal life if we're in Christ? We have forever life. This earthly life is a small segment. It's a fraction, a a very small fraction of all of eternity. You know, if you thought about it, if you knew that from the day you step off this planet into eternity, you'll never suffer again, And you're going to have absolute bliss and glory. You're just going, well, what Paul says, I count everything that I've gone through as a light affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory. Get everything in perspective. God is preparing you and me for all of eternity. We have a major assignment coming up, and we're getting prepared for it. And part of that preparation is living this earthly existence. Part of that preparation is dealing with the various trials and difficulties that come our way because God has a major assignment for us and he's preparing us for it. Isn't that great? Think the right way. Think biblically. And all of a sudden, your problems take on the right perspective. The first thing to help us in our to persevere is to remember our spiritual beginnings. Now, how many know that beginnings can be very challenging? And I want to give you a portrait today kind of the, a picture. You can look at the Christian life as a marathon. But I want you to look at it also as sailing a ship. And that you and I are leaving the harbor and you're going to sail across the seas. And I'm going to suggest to you that there are three dangerous points in sailing. When you leave the harbor, when you're out in the open water, and when you're about to enter back into the harbor. You're going, Pastor, that's the whole trip. I said, that's exactly right. But the most dangerous parts are at the beginning And at the end, but also the big storms that come in the middle. Okay? We're not dodging the bullet, is what I'm saying. But let's take a look at the beginnings. And they were reminding these Hebrews, these early believers, of the suffering that they had already experienced, they had already gone through a number of problems. They'd been misunderstood, they'd been taken advantage of financially, they'd even been physically abused, they had suffered. In chapter 10 and verse 32 it says, Remember those early days after you'd received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution and other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathize with those in prison. You joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possessions. Now, I love what Raymond Brown brings out regarding this, these few verses. He says, it will deepen our fellowship. This, this is one of the reasons why God allows hardships is he wants to do something inside of us. I'm gonna say this, you know, if you and I don't go through difficult experiences, we remain very superficial and shallow. True? True. How many have ever met a superficial, shallow person? They're the people that hardly have ever gone through difficulties in life. You know, they've always been shielded and sheltered as much as possible. And there's a lot of people like that. And they are superficial. And they are shallow. And they have very little empathy and very little compassion for other people because they don't even know what it's like to suffer. But you go through some stuff, all of a sudden you've got a deeper level of empathy and compassion for other people because you've experienced it. And he says, it will deepen our fellowship. It says, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. Isn't that neat? You know, God, is, God knows what it's like to suffer because He has suffered. And because He has suffered, He comforts us in our suffering. I love that. Then it says, so that you can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. In other words, when you and I get God's comfort in our trouble, then when someone else comes along and they have trouble, we we have learned from our experience and we can share with others the comfort that God brought into our experience. How many here, you've ever gone through something in your life and you said, I have no idea why I went through this? Raise your hand. You ever have that experience? I have no idea why I'm going through this. And I've had those experiences and I just said, okay, I'm just going to trust God. Because I, I, I try to tell people, the big thing in life is if you can settle this, you'll always be okay no matter how old you get. Settle in your mind that God is good, he's always good, and settle in your mind that God is loving. And no matter what happens to you, you never move away from the, that position. God, you're good, you're loving. Sometimes something happens, I go, I have no idea what's going on. It doesn't look like life is going good right now, but I still believe God is good, God is loving. I believe God's going to work this out for good. I don't know how it's going to happen. I've gone through experiences, and I've said I haven't even figured out what I was supposed to learn from this. And about 10 years later, somebody comes along and starts sharing with me. I go, now I know why I went through that. I can actually help this person along their journey because I never... Now it's dawning on me, God gave me some stuff to help me through that time, I'm now passing it on to somebody else. Many times God allows us to go through things, not just for our sake, but for the sake of others. That's all part of growing up. Some of us go, "Oh God, I, re- I want you to really use my life. Anybody ever prayed this? God, I really want you to use my life. God says, okay. The more you're gonna be used, the more you have to suffer. Everybody that God greatly used, they had to suffer. I've read, I've read biographies. I've read the Bible carefully many times. The people God greatly uses, they've all greatly suffered. Period. It's the way it works. Number two, it increases our compassion. I've already talked about that. Listen, they were living in a time where the taxation system did not pay for their prisons. It was real simple. You got thrown in prison. If you didn't have friends or family, you'd die. You'd starve to death because no one took care of you. You had to have outside help. Notice what it says here. You, it says here, they went, it says, and stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathize with those in prison. In other words, they went and helped those people. You know why? Because they thought I could be in prison because they're just being thrown in prison because of their faith. Maybe I wasn't being thrown in prison for my faith. People didn't complain against me. Now that I'm free, I'm taking what I have to help those who now are imprisoned. You know, when you and I have something to share, we need to share it with those that don't have. That's a biblical concept. True? Read the Bible carefully. If you have something, your brother has need, share it with them. We're to help each other. goes on, number three, it demonstrates our strength and endurance in the face of persecution. Notice their attitude. They weren't upset or angry. They didn't grumble or complain. But they joyfully accept their losses. Look what it says. It says, you sympathize with those in prison and joyfully accept the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. Now, how many here would be real happy to come home? No house, just taken away from you, just because you're a Christian. And I could just see some people phoning me, Pastor, I'm so upset, you can't believe what happened. These guys, this was happening frequently in their community of faith, and the people were rejoicing. Well, praise God. You know, how many go, that's how I respond to problems, Pastor. When they come my way and life throws me a lemonade, I mean a lemon, I just praise God. I just start rejoicing in what's going on in my life. That's exactly how you respond, right? You're just overjoyed when the problem hits you. True? Some of you are smiling at me like, Pastor, are you talking to the, I mean, are you serious? I'm going, yes, I am serious. They were experiencing joy. Now, I'm going to tell you why they can experience joy. Let me ask you a question. At the end of your life, I'm going to move you, fast forward you. Now you're at the very last day of your life. I don't even want to think this way, but we're going to do that for a moment. You're at the very last day of your life, and you're breathing your last number of breaths. At that moment, what's important? Where you live? No. What you, all the stuff you acquired? No, that won't be important at that moment. You know, at the very end, as you're starting to fade and the world is slipping away, even your family now, as important as they were, you can't take them with you. Even as important as they were, they are no longer important. As you're about ready to take your last breath, you know what's the important thing? My faith in Christ. My faith in Christ. That's all that's important at that moment. I can guarantee you. If you have faith in Christ today, you have the most important possession possible. You can lose everything else, but that's the most important thing. We have a wrong perspective on our lives. That's our problem. That's why we can rejoice no matter what's happening to us because nobody can take Christ from me. Nobody can take Christ from you. Nobody. Not all the demons in hell can't do that. No, all the persecution in the world, all the lies against you, all the difficulties, nothing can take Christ from you. You have the most important possession, Christ living in you. Raymond Brown says, they joyfully accepted this plundering looting and violence. No unbeliever could possibly have responded in that way to such dire trouble. He says a non-Christian may tolerate his troubles but he cannot rejoice in them. Only Christ can enable a believer to do that. Jesus taught us to rejoice when persecution comes. Isn't that amazing? I believe that it's possible that God can give us such joy in the midst of our trouble that we can be rejoicing. That people around us could think, I I want what you got. Because nobody can go through what you're going through and have that kind of joy. What are you on? You know? And you can say, I'm on Jesus. I'm serious. I remember as a brand new Christian. I remember one time I was going to work, and I had a very interesting, I had quite a radical conversion. Maybe that's why I'm a pastor. I don't know. I just got so motivated. Faith becomes such a real thing to me And I still remember cooking in this restaurant. And it was really a difficult moment in my life. And it was, I had nobody in my life. No family. And the only family I had in that community was my sister. And she was, we were on a different page spiritually. So she was kind of going, you are different, buddy. So there was not a lot of what I call support from that quarter. I'm not saying my sister's not a nice lady. She is a great gal. But at that moment, no support. Okay, so I'm on my own. And, you know, you, and some of you are in that state right now, and you go, I'm all by myself. You know, nobody understands, and people are persecuting or saying this. And I went to work one day, and it was a really tough place I was working at. And I just started worshiping God. And I didn't start out, I, you know, here's our problem. We, we let our emotions define our faith life. True or false? True. Mostly. True, right? And I decided I'm just going to praise God. That's why I started praising God. I did not feel like praising God. How many know what I'm talking about? You just don't feel like it. But the Bible says I will bless the Lord at all times. So I just obeyed it. How many know when you obey God's word, it's a good thing to do? And I just started praising God and I started out singing and I wasn't that excited. But about 15 minutes in, pretty soon the presence of God and the joy, and I'm dancing and cooking, and man, I'm having a blast back there and worshiping God. And the people are coming out of the bar and they're going to order their meals, you know, and they're looking at this guy in the back and he's having more fun than they had. And they go, What's he on? They sent a waitress back to find out what what drug or substance I was on. How could you be that happy? And I said, go back and tell them I found Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, I found Jesus. You know? It's amazing. Finally, it sharpens our priorities. Notice how these believers started realizing what was really important in life. And I think Christians need to remember that adversity is rarely a vicious enemy. It is often a valuable ally. It reminds us of the imperishable things that matter most of all. Isn't that true? You go through, you know, everybody I've talked to, you go through a medical emergency, all of a sudden life becomes more meaningful. You know, you you lose a spouse, and all of a sudden people become more meaningful. It's true. See, we have to sometimes have our whole priorities focus on adversity, difficulty, trial. They cue us in. All of a sudden, you go, hey, this is powerful stuff. Let me move on to the second thing that helps us to persevere, and that is to retain our confidence in God. It says, it's amazing. In chapter 10, verse 35, it says, So do not throw away your confidence, it will be richly rewarded. We need to have confidence, or I'm going to say this, we need to learn how to trust God and just believe that God is good. See, I keep saying that. Settle that in your heart. God, you're good. I have confidence in you. I don't know how this is all going to work out, but I'm going to trust you in the midst of what's going on in my life. Then he says, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. In other words, don't give up. Hang in there. See the thing through. Walk through this experience, you know. Some of you are in trial right now. Some of you are in challenge. Some of you are facing major obstacles. You know what I would say to you? Learn how to praise God continuously through your trial, and eventually the season of trial will come to an end, and you will be a far richer, deeper, stronger more godly person as a result because you've learned to trust God. You will have built a bank of experience so that the next trial, further down the road that shows up, you will know that God is faithful, he is good, and you will know that God is doing something positive in the long run in these situations. It's all about attitude. It really is. Donald Guthrie says it this way, endurance is a more specific aspect of confidence and includes an element of perseverance, of persistence, even when circumstances are contrary. Isn't that amazing? You know, we need to learn to endure. I remember a number of years ago, I'm pastoring and things are not going the way I want them to. Uh, That happens to all of us, right? How many can say my life may not be going the way I want it to? Some of you are saying that. Okay, and, what, and when I was talking to God and I was saying, okay, what am I doing wrong? That's a question we all like to ask. And you know, I felt, you know, I'm pastoring our church and I, I, I said to myself, maybe I'm the problem. You ever get to that place where you're going, don't look for other scapegoats. Maybe I'm the problem. So God, if I'm the problem, show me. How many think that's a good prayer? So I leave for summer. I'm speaking at camps. God's moving powerfully. He's using my life. People are encouraging me. And I felt the Spirit of God saying, you're not the problem. I go, well, what? something's the problem. Something's wrong. And God says, nothing's wrong. I said, well, what's going down? And I finally, God finally got it through to me. I'm teaching you endurance. Oh, how do you learn endurance? Endurance. By enduring, by having to put up with stuff, by going through difficulty. That's how you learn it. I'm teaching you perseverance. I go, oh, this is no fun. (laughs) You know, I'm not enjoying this. But I'm getting it. I'm understanding. And eventually, the good news, that season came to an end. I want to declare to you today, all of your trials, they all have a season. They'll all come to an end. Every trial will come to an end. Every trial will come to an end. Some of you go, you know, I'm going to be like this till the day I die. It's going to come to an end. Because you see, you have eternal life if you have Christ, and you will be in all of eternity, and you won't be having that problem. Every trial will come to an end. Some are longer, some are shorter, everyone comes to an end. God's word always stays the same. endures so what do we need to learn oh i love this ah we have to learn patience i waited for the lord and he turned to me and he heard my cry you know we read in psalm 130 i patiently waited for god how many know that patiently waiting is not a strong suit in our culture today we're the microwave generation everything's instantaneous right Do you know you cannot take a shortcut to God? Developing in the Christian life is a journey and it takes time. You can't fast forward it. Sorry. You can't skip the commercials. You know, you can't PVR the program and skip all the commercials. I'm just telling you what it's like. You've got to endure some stuff. You've got to go through some stuff to grow, to learn. I patiently waited. And you know when you're a leader, it's even worse because leaders by nature are not noted for their patience. Because there are people that want to get things done, otherwise they're not a leader. And so you have to battle something inside of you that says, I want to accomplish this. And yet God is going, but you got to be patient about it. And you know what happens when we become impatient? We do stupid stuff. King Saul was told by the prophet Samuel, he said, now listen, I want you to wait for seven days and I'm going to come and we're going to do an offering And Saul was fine with that, but guess what happened? Pressure got put on Saul. There's an enemy that came against him. His men got petrified. They were deserting. Saul going, I'm losing my army. I won't have anybody to fight with. And he waited the seven days, and it says, and when Samuel had not come yet, what did he do? He decided, I will do the offering. And he did the offering, and the moment he got done, Samuel showed up. He says, what in the world are you doing? I told you to wait. Yeah, but I couldn't wait any longer. I took things into my own hands. And how many times is that the case? We just do our thing and we mess it up. We make things worse. God says, because you couldn't wait, I can't let you to read. I'm not gonna have my hand, your kingdom is not gonna last forever. I'm gonna take it away from you. He didn't take it away right then. He took it away 40 years later, but he did take it away. His sons never inherited his kingdom. David inherited it, and all of his sons inherited the kingdom. Do you know, waiting is so powerful, and the reason being, as Henry Nouwen writes, he says, I'm an impatient, restless person. Slowing down and waiting seems like a waste of time. How many here are fast-forward people? You're a fast-forward, I'm a fast-forward person. Waiting is not your, your thing. Okay, yet waiting seems to be an inevitable part of the human condition. Now one goes on to say, waiting is a period of learning. The longer we wait, the more we hear about him from whom we are waiting. And then Eugene Peterson says it this way in his translation of the Bible, the message. Look how he translates Romans. He goes, waiting does not diminish us. Any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. <laughs> I love that because I, you know, I wrap my mind around that. What's happening? See, we think we're waiting and nothing's happening. And what God is doing is birthing something into our lives. And it takes time for that to be developed. And then eventually in God's time, delivery comes. Love it. But we're impatient. So what do we try to do is we try to have premature births. Come on now. It's the truth and it gets us into trouble. Let me move on to the third thing. We have to remember our spiritual beginnings. Retain our confidence in God and the final one is to continue to move forward and not to regress. Not to go backwards. You know we're encouraged not to reverse directions, not to cower in fear. We're, we're called to stand fast, to hold to our faith. He goes on to say, uh, well, I was, let me just I put that in the clip in the wrong place. Let me move on here. Come back to that. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. Now he's he's quoting from the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk's an Old Testament prophet. What's he saying? He's saying, God will show up in your situation. But my righteous one will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. Now, let me give you the context. If you go back to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, here's the story. Let me give it the picture. Habakkuk is freaking out. He's a prophet of God. He goes, God, I don't get you. How in the world could you be sending these Babylonians, these evil people, to conquer us when we're better than they are? We're more righteous than they are. And God goes, yeah, but you've had more light than they've had. I expected more from you. You didn't didn't rise up to your responsibilities. I'm going to use them to discipline you. He's explaining to Habakkuk. Habakkuk goes, well, that's freaking me right out. These guys are destroying nations, and you're gonna let them come over here and take us down? God goes, yep. And then you get this amazing quote. God says, but the righteous person will live by his faith. In other words, you and I can trust God even though things are not gonna turn out the way we want. And then you read Habakkuk chapter three. Have you ever read Habakkuk chapter three? How many have read that? Let's just go there. This I think is so beautiful. My, my Habakkuk 3 is on page 914 probably a different it's, it's, towards, it's near the gospel of Matthew just a few pages back you'll find Habakkuk listen to what he says he said I heard in other words I heard God what you're saying to me and my heart pounded and my lips quivered at the sound decay crept into my bones and my legs tre- trembled what is he saying I'm scared out of my mind God Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity. In other words, I'm going to wait. I I know destruction's coming our way, and I'm going to patiently wait for it to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, what's he saying? Things are going to get stripped from us. He says, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. What is he saying? He says, it don't matter what happens to me. I'm going to keep rejoicing in you. Amen. How many? He, do you think he's a man of faith? Amen. What's he saying? He says, no matter what happens to him, I'm going to keep praising God. I'm going to keep trusting God. I'm going to keep rejoicing in God. He said, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He says, what's going to keep me going is you. He says, he makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go onto the heights. He's basically saying, God, you're gonna sustain me in this amazingly difficult time. But I love what, he, what, what is said in Habakkuk chapter two, verse four, because listen to what it says there when God was answering him after he was asking the question, why is this about to happen? It says in verse four, it says, see, he is puffed up. He's talking about the Babylonians. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by what? no doesn't say that the righteous shall live by his faith now in the new testament it's not quoted like that as a matter of fact i looked it up in the book of romans chapter 1 and verse 17 this verse is quoted again it's quoted twice in the new testament and neither time is the word his in there i don't know if you guys notice this but you know you go why is that pastor well i'm going to give you a little insight into the bible do you know the old testament's written in hebrew right But you know that the Hebrews actually translated the Old Testament into a Greek translation called the Septuagint? How many knew that? Oh, some of you did. Okay. Now, here's the freaky part. The New Testament writers quoted not from the Hebrew text. They quoted from the Septuagint all the time. They quoted from a translation into another language. So a lot of times when we are reading the New Testament and you go back to the original quote, you'll notice there's a little difference, and that's the reason. Now, I want to point out something very powerful because this word his is not in the New Testament, but the idea is still there. Think about it. In Habakkuk, it says, and the just shall live by his faith, and some scholars believe the word his there is not the faith of the the person trusting, but it's God's faith. In other words, the word faith and faithful are actually the same word. In other words, the just shall live by faith. God's faithfulness. In other words, you and I can have confidence because God is faithful. I can trust. Woo! I like that. That is encouraging so that it's not depending on my faith because if it's depending on me, I'm going to be up, I'm going to be down. Anybody relate to this? How many can say, I can go up, I can go down. My faith can be strong, my faith can be weak. You know what I mean? Our faith can be all over the map. But if, my, if I'm living and my faith is in, in him, my, you know, the just shall live by his faithfulness. In other words, I can be faithful because he is faithful. I can persevere because of God's faithfulness. Wow, that's a whole different thought. And then he goes on, and I'm going to close with this. It says, but my righteous one will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. God says, I don't want you to shirk. I don't want you to pull back. This is actually a nautical term. I love this. Here's another word picture. How many like word pictures? I like, because they help me to remember. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. So God is saying, no, I want you to persevere. I want you to continue on in the faith. And here's the nautical position. It says, when you're coming into the harbor, it's the idea of flurring your sails. How many know you can't park a boat in the middle of the sea? That doesn't work, right? You have to park a boat at the harbor. And here's the picture. When you're coming in, you just can't put the brakes on. I've gone boating a number of times. They don't have brakes. Just gonna point that out. And if you're in a sailboat, and we've been sailing too, you have to take the sail down. And as you're taking sails down, the boat is slowing down. And what he's saying here is don't put all the sails down because if you if you, you know, if you don't do this right, you never make the harbor. You gotta have the sails, some sail up. And you got to know exactly when to take the sail down and which sails to take down. It's a little more tricky, isn't it? And what he's using is this analogy of, you know what? Don't kick it in. When you're coming into harbor and you put all the sails down, you, you may not even make the harbor. Don't shirk back. It's a warning. He's warning us. Listen, this is a long race. This is a long journey on the sailboat. Some of you, you may be starting the journey. And you're trying to get outside, you know, because the dangerous parts are always around the shorelines because there's reefs and rocks and all kinds of problems. And then you get sailing for a while and go, hey, this is great, you know. How many you know there's a lot of room to operate in a big wide ocean? A lot of operating space. But then the storms of life come along. Whoa, man, you've got to handle the storms that come to our faith. And that's kind of sailing through the middle parts of our life, and then eventually, we all know we're going to come to the end. And that's, tri- that's a little tricky too. And I've watched people not do good. How many say, I've watched Christians not finish well? I've watched people not do well at the end. That's because they took their sails down too fast. And he says, I want you to make harbor. Don't shrink back. Don't shrink back. Persevere in the faith. It's a good word. Let me close with this little poem. I'm going to skip a bunch of stuff. It's okay. You got the heart of the sermon. Oh, here, here it comes. I love this. So when despair tries to take me under, I choose life. When I wonder what God could possibly be thinking, I choose trust. When I desperately want relief from unrelenting reality, I choose perseverance. When I feel oppressed by my disappointment and sorrow, I choose gratitude. When I want to keep my feelings to myself, I choose vulnerability. And when nothing goes according to my plan, I choose relinquishment. And when I want to point the finger, I choose forgiveness. What a great attitude. Let's stand this morning. You know, it's interesting this morning in the first service... How many people came up to me afterwards and said, Pastor, it was exactly what God, I needed to hear from God today. You see, to me, it's not just instructing or teaching. I believe God says this. Listen to what it says. I've been studying the book of Hebrews. This is the one verse that has really resonated in my soul. It says, today, if you hear my voice. Today, if you hear my voice. Are you hearing the voice of the Father? you hearing God? See, I've done my part. I'm, I've shared the message. Have you heard the message? Have you heard God speak into your soul? What does he go on to say? Do not harden your heart. Are you listening? What is God saying to you? I think for some of you, he's saying, I know you're going through a hard time. You've wondered if I love you or care about you. Dismiss that. I do love you. I died for you. Get that out of your head. I am sending you through this time. I know exactly what I'm doing. You're navigating your life. I know exactly the amount of pressure to put in every situation. It's revealing some stuff inside of you that isn't as nice as you thought it was. You thought you were better than what you are. Trial has a way of bringing up the garbage. How many can say that's true? It shows me where I'm really at. But let's not despair there. God can forgive us. We can ask for God's grace today. We can ask God to sustain us. Some of you say, you know what I'm finding out? I'm not that spiritually strong. I'm a little wimpy, and I have to admit, I have some attitudinal issues, and I'm a big complainer and a whiner, you know? And I'm not rejoicing. I'm not not evidencing a lot of maturity in my trial right now. I I feel like I'm caving in and falling apart. But the good news is God's grace is here. We can say, Lord, help me. I'm not doing as good as I thought I was, but I want to do better. Would you send your presence into my soul right now? Would you reinforce what's going on in the inside? Would you give me more internal strength to handle the pressure from outside so I'm not going to be caved, crushed by the pressure? I I need internal fortitude right now. I need some joy in my soul. So Holy Spirit, I am inviting you to come in right now and fill me with joy. Because you know what? what is that little text in Nehemiah 8.10 says? The joy of the Lord is my strength. What you need today is God's joy. Amen? Can you see it? See, I can't guarantee, you know, that there'll be no adversity. Jesus never makes that guarantee. As a matter of fact, he says there will be some. You can bank on it. But don't let it define you. Don't let it overwhelm you. Don't let it, you know, allow it to shape you in the right way. Allow it to become, you know, what's going to develop you to become a stronger believer, that you're more enduring and more patient and more compassionate, more understanding. Isn't that good? Amen? So with every head bowed, we're going to close in prayer. How many here say this morning, Pastor, you know what? God's Spirit's been speaking in my soul today. That's me. Just raise your hand. God's Spirit's been speaking to my soul, and I want him to do a work inside of me right now. I want the Spirit to come. I want the Spirit to reinforce. I want the Spirit to bring joy. I want the Spirit to bring strength inside of me today. I need that kind of help. I'm going through a trial right now. I'm not here to judge you. Nobody's here judging you. That's not the goal. Jesus is not about condemning us. He's about helping us. And he wants to save us today. He wants to set us free today. He wants you to leave this place in, even though you have trial in your life that you're full of joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what I believe he wants for you. I believe he wants to give you the, the enabling grace to sustain you through this moment so that you'll persevere right through this season and you will be a better, stronger, more loving, more considerate, more forgiving, more compassionate, more understanding believer. A stronger believer. Amen? Lord, I pray to that end. All of these things that I have just enumerated, I pray to that end that you will pour life into us. You will pour strength. You will pour encouragement. You will pour comfort. You will pour your presence. You will pour joy. You will pour peace in our heart. We receive the glory of your grace right now, sustaining us so that we can continue to endure and persevere, even though things may not be going the way we'd like them to go. But Lord, you are designing and developing and shaping our lives, and I pray today that you will give us a, a greater degree of purpose than we've ever had before. That we will not be defined by our problems but by the purposes of the living God in our lives. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen.